The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. Well, again, welcome and uh, grab your Bible if you would. Let's open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we are for the next few minutes this morning. Uh, we're in a series that we have entitled Wired. And a Wired is an attempt for us to inform and instruct and inspire on uh, why we are the way we are, the philosophy of ministry for uh, our church. Why is the church here? Why do we function the way we function? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we sing? Why do we do missions? Why do we introduce you to missionaries? And we spent three weeks, this is number three, dealing with the philosophy of ministry. We talked about how we are a doxological church, meaning that we exist for the glory of God. We want to make much of Jesus. We want to see and savor the glory of God. We want to sing again and again songs like God is awesome and such an awesome God. We talked about how last week we are a missional church, meaning that we live on mission, that we gather and scatter with the expectation that within our meeting together and our scattering out lies the opportunity to show off and tell of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We are missional appreciate what Ryan said a minute ago, how the mission of the church is to make disciples and we use any means within uh, morality to introduce people to the gospel. We want people to know Jesus Christ. And today I'm going to talk about something that could be misunderstood. So you have to hear me out before you assume what I'm saying. And that is that we are an attractional church. (laughs) Now the attractional church is an interesting uh, phrase or it's an interesting adjective for church. You see, attractional has been used to describe a church that will do anything in order to get people to come to church. That's, that's what an attractional church methodology says. We're going to do whatever we can. We're going to do whatever it takes. We're going to play whatever kind of music. We're going to do whatever kind of things. So all of our activities, all of our events, all of our sermon topics, everything is just geared to just get people to be here. We just want them here. So it may mean maybe I'll compromise on taking a stand here or drawing a line here, but that's okay because people are coming. It's attractional. Whatever it takes in our culture to attract people to attend is what maybe what we understood attractional church to be. So we choose everything based upon that which is culturally relevant and culturally attractive. I just want to make it clear. I am emphatically not a believer in that methodology. (laughs) Attractional church is not by that definition, what I'm talking about today. However, I do find that Christ calls us to be an attractional influence in our culture. It's funny because the opposite of attractional is what? Unattractional, right? So I don't think that anywhere you can make the argument that God's will for the believer or the church is to be unattractional. It's nowhere in God's word that we are unattractive or that we are uh, unattractional in our attempt to engage the world around us. No, God's pretty clear. Christ is pretty clear that the philosophy of the church is to be a people who are to one degree or another or by one definition or another, an attractional people. And I find that Matthew chapter five, verse 13 through 16, Jesus tells us, recorded by Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, what is an attractional Christian? What is an attractional Church. It's, it's in a church that we know functions with the awareness of the non-churched in its context. We function knowing that we are in the world and around us is a world of non-churched, non-believing, non-born again, non-saved people that we engage with and we want to remove barriers that can be removed and engage with them in a way that Christ calls us to engage with them so that we are attractive in a sense 
though to some we won't be attractive for the glory of our God. So Christ calls us in Matthew chapter five to be an attractional influence on the world around us. So I wanna help you see what that means by unpacking for a few minutes, Matthew chapter five, verse 13 through 16. Let's read it together. You open your Bible in front of you. If you have a copy of God's word, I encourage you to do so. The words will be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, we give them away out at the Connection Center. So when you go out and sign up for a study or a group, tell them you need a Bible too, and they will be sure to give you one. Around here, we are pretty uh, convinced, convicted about the fact that these are God's words. So we approach them with abundant reverence and awareness that these are God's words for us. Verse 13, you follow along, I'll read aloud. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its savor, or lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These are words from Christ recorded for us and preserved for us by the power of God. What I think we need to see, what I'm convinced we need to see from this lesson or this part of the Sermon on the Mount given by Christ to his followers is this big idea. If you're in the habit of writing this down, it's important for you to understand because everything we say from this point forward will go back to this. Here's the big idea. God intends for his disciples to engage the world as attractional influences. God intends, God's will, God's plan for you and me, God's plan for us as his followers, as Christians, as his church is to engage the world as attractional influences. Now, when we talk about the world, we're talking about the people who are in this world. We're not talking about the land and the oceans and the mountains. We're talking about people. We're talking about the philosophy and the mindset of the people in the world that are non-church, that are outside of a relationship with God. They're not followers of Christ. They're still under the domain and the control of Satan. The Bible is pretty clear several places that we are not to be conformed to this world, that we are not to love the world for all that is in the world, according to John in 1 John, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. So we recognize that there is a distinction between Christ's disciples and the world of the non-churched, non-disciples of Christ. And we believe it's pretty clear that God encourages us or intends for us to engage in one way or another, in some way to engage in that world. And engage implies that we are not to isolate, neither are we to assimilate. To engage, we're not to isolate, meaning that we don't build big walls in a compound and put barbed wire over it and just stay in and hunker down and hope the world doesn't break down our walls and we just live with our favorite people. Nor do we assimilate, meaning that we don't just become as the world. We don't adopt the world's way of thinking or the world culture. We are to engage, but not isolate, nor are we to assimilate. We are to engage the world, but not to become like the world. But we are to be an attractive, attractive influence in the world because that's what God intends for his disciples to do, to engage the world as attractional influences. So how does this text teach us how we as disciples can maximize our attractional influence? How does the text teach us to maximize that attractional, what is that attractional influence and how do we utilize it and maximize it? 
So for the next couple of minutes, I want to encourage you towards seeing what it means to be salt and light, what it means to be an attractional influence with the world around us. So here's how we're going to do it. There's three of them. There's three ways, three things he gives us here that I see from our text. We're going to do it this way, attractional influence. Number one, we must understand this. I am called to embrace my influence. I am called to embrace my influence. Now, it is clear that Jesus intends to call on his disciples to embrace their influence by recognizing what they are in the world as disciples. He's calling us to embrace the influence that we have as disciples of Jesus Christ. You're gonna see this in verse 13. You are the what? Does it say there? The salt of the earth. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, he says, you are the what? Light of the world. Let's do that together. Verse 13 says, you are the what? Here. And second, verse 14, he says, you are the light. You are the salt. You are the light. Now, it's important for us to understand the tense of the words because Jesus is not saying you should be salt and light. He's not saying, you darn Christians, you should be salty. (laughs) You should be more light. He's not promising that one day you will be salt and one day you will be light. He's not even commanding you to be salt and light. He's not exhorting us to act like salt or look like light. He's not encouraging us to strive for saltiness or brightness. He doesn't exhort us to pray that God will make you salty and bright. He says you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. In this statement, our function as salt and light is assumed. Our nature as salt and light is explicit. In fact, in the tense of the word that is original, it is emphatic, meaning that you and only you are the salt of the earth. His disciples, his church, his followers, you and you only are, this is what you are. Leon Morris recognizes that this, that Jesus is not talking about people in general, but specifically about his followers. He says, you are, in that he is making a statement, not giving a promise. You are. What are you then? You are the salt. In the cultural world of the ancient Near East, there's an understanding that is believed that salt was an essential and valuable commodity. In fact, the Roman government often paid soldiers their, ways, their wages in salt. A good faithful man was said to be worth his salt. You ever use that phrase? That's where it comes from. In fact, our English word salary comes from the Latin word salarium, which means to trade or barter with salt. So salt served as a valuable commodity and it was valuable for a wide array of purposes. There's a couple of them that are, I think, important that potentially Jesus had in mind. One is that because of a lack of refrigeration, salt was used as a preservative to preserve food, especially meat, which would quickly spoil in the the, the arid desert climate and environment. And in the same way, it's possible and probable that Christ had in mind that we are the preservatives to the world, that we preserve it from evil, that in in the society of ungodly men whose unredeemed natures are corrupted by sin, we serve as a bit of a preservative. So in the way we function, in the way we act, in the way we represent Christ, we preserve maybe society to a certain degree from the, the rapid moral decay that is natural to the world. Second, salt was used also as a flavor enhancer. 
How many of you are grateful to God for salt? Amen? Amen. We're grateful for it. I know some of you cooks out there get offended when we use salt, but we got to, right? We have to. I know if I cook, you'll use a lot of it. And in the same way that salt enhances flavor, the followers of Christ stand out as those who enhance the flavor of life in this world. Christians living under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in obedience to Christ will inevitably influence the world for good. Salt is a positive influence on the flavor of the food it seasons. So where there is strife, we followers of Christ are to be peacemakers. Where there is sorrow, we are to be ministers of Christ, binding up wounds. Where there is hatred, we are to exemplify the love of God in Christ, returning good for evil. We are to make the gospel, we are to make God be more glorious and the gospel received and, and, and recognized as being more valuable because of our lives. Now listen, it's not all the way clear exactly in our text what use of salt Jesus had in mind. However, it is clear that Jesus saw salt as a valuable and useful element of life in the world. Regardless of the specific use he had in mind, Jesus meant to teach his disciples and us that we have a useful role to play in our engagement with the world around us. We have a useful engagement, whether that is a preservative, whether that is a, a, to make uh, the flavor of life taste better because of the fruits of the spirit that ooze from us, whether that is to land on open wounds and hurt. I don't know exactly what the picture was, but I know it was useful and it was effective and God saw that and Christ saw that. Salt and all of its uses made things better. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Saltiness is natural to those living filled with the spirit and bearing the fruit that the spirit produces. The spirit produces in us the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you know all of the fruits of the spirit that the spirit of God produces in the lives of his followers are not natural in the world? The world is a place of moral decay. It's a place of, 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 of wickedness. So the salt of the earth, who we are, are the people who produce that which is countercultural and offer as a preservative and an enhancer to these things. We want to be a salty people, don't we? Not in a bad way, in the good way. We want to have a loving environment, a welcoming environment, a worshiping environment, a distinct environment, a kind environment, a unified environment, an orderly environment, a place where a smile and a kind word and a gentleness and forgiveness and unity marks the gatherings of his people so that the world that doesn't know that on the regular comes to this place and says, there's something different about these people. There's something different about this place. What is it? Well, it's, we're all salty. We're a salty people. You know where it's really hard to be the salt of the earth is driving down rainbow <laughs> at five o'clock. You know where it's even worse is if you live here is merging from the 215 onto the 15. That is the, who designed this. More lack of saltiness comes, actually the bad kind of saltiness comes out of me when I'm driving on that place. All jokes aside though, in all of those contexts that are tension points in our lives, the reality is one of the marks that distinguish us from the world is that we ooze with the fruits of the spirit that makes us the salt of the earth. That's what he's saying. Embrace the reality of who you are in Christ. You are emphatically, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. 
Then he says, you are the light of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Now in Matthew 5, 14, he declares, you are the light of the world. The reason for this is because we are not inherently, naturally, the light producers, but we are the reflectors of the light. Christ is the light when he was here like the sun on a midday July summer afternoon. When he died, sun was set, his church was left as the moon rises, and we are reflectors of the light of the Son of God. And the reason for this light is because of darkness. The world in which we live is full of darkness, which is always a picture of wickedness and immorality. In fact, John chapter 3, verse 19 says that this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. This is what total depravity is. People love darkness rather than light. They love sin rather than righteousness. They love iniquity rather than holiness. They love lies rather than truth. They love deception rather than reality. They love themselves rather than God. They love worldly pleasures rather than spiritual blessings. We live in a world that is in darkness and a world that loves darkness because they love the wickedness of their works. Yet the Bible says that we are children of light in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. And we are children of the day, that, that we are not of the night, nor are we of the darkness. Therefore, according to Ephesians, that we are to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what he says, Ephesians 5, 11. When Christ was in the world, he was the light. And then when he left, he left us as his body, continuing on as his disciples, as light in the world, being uh, uh, punching holes in the darkness, if you will. In fact, 1 Peter 2.9 says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Listen, why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called you. Listen, if you're saved today, you once were in a place of moral, spiritual, mental, and every way you could describe darkness. And he called you out and saved you and placed you into his marvelous light. And now you exist like the moon to display the brightness of the sun. That's what he's saying. You are the light of the world. Ancient travelers did not have bright lights. They didn't have directional signs. They weren't riding their donkey and saw a big flashing LED light that said, turn here to get to Jerusalem. <laughs> the roads weren't paved to aid their journey. Most people only traveled during the day because at night it was dangerous. And sometimes the darkness would fall before the travelers would make it to their destination. And that was a dangerous situation. When the traveler, though, however, at night saw the lights of the hilltop city, it brought them direction, comfort, and safety. This is what Jesus is calling us to be in this dark world. The church is a city, he says, that's set on a hill that cannot be hidden. In fact, you don't hide a city if you see it there. Verse 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. The life that oozes with light because of the reflective power of the sun in us and through us and the fruits of the spirit and the life that we live that reflects the glory of our savior then reflects into the dark world so that those that are wandering in darkness, suffering in the brokenness of their darkness, see a light that actually is hope of safety. As kingdom citizens, it should be impossible to blend in with the world because light doesn't blend well with darkness. You know that. You have a room full of darkness and one little flicker, it stands out. The world uh, understands this. They, they know this. When they, when they catch us saying or doing something that we should not, they say, oh, I thought you were a Christian. I didn't think that your light could blend in with my darkness. They didn't say that theologically, but they know that. In fact, uh, John, or Matthew in verse 16 says it this way. 
Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. So what he's saying here, it seems that good works is the general expression that covers everything that Christian says and does. And he's saying one of the ways that we show forth the glory of Christ is through our lives, our conversations and our actions that are the good works that reflect the glory of our Savior. The Christian life should be filled with works of service that reflect the life of Christ so that those who, uh, who, who uh, abide in darkness will see the reflective power of the sun coming through our lives. You are this. You are this. You are this. What Christ is doing here then is he is defining who we are now that we are his disciples and for us to embrace the influence that we have, that we have been inherited by aligning with Christ. It's not a command. It's, it's to, it, it, uh, to be something. It's not something that you need to work harder at this. No, it's, it's an affirmation that we are something. You are this. It's convicting, isn't it? Isn't it convicting to realize that what Christ is saying to me and to you is that we are the salt of the earth and that we are the light of the world in a dark place to represent him and reflect his glories in and through our good works and our lifestyle? One man said this, the status of salt and light is something that follows naturally from the Christian's humble obedience to the commandments of Christ. Let me say that again. The status of salt and light the, the effectiveness, let me say it that way, of salt and light is something that follows naturally from the Christian's humble obedience to the commandments of Christ. When I live in submission to the work of the Spirit in me and the call of Christ on my life, I am a person who then lives salty and bright in a world that is dark and hopeless. It is when we depart from the Spirit-led lifestyle of genuine discipleship that the distinctions between ourselves and the rest of the world become blurred and our testimony is hindered. I don't know what that means for you. I think you might know what that means. Where have you lost your savor as a salty person, salty Christian? Where has your light been dimmed? You are this. Where has it been rendered less effective? How can you be that? What's the tone of voice that you need to have? What's the act of forgiveness or the act of repentance that you need to give? What's the kind word or the kind gesture or the gracious status or posture that you need to take in order to be the person who represents the life of Christ? Who do you need to walk across the street and love on? What do you need to do with being a generous person that might ooze with saltiness and brightness to a world that's living in a dark, hopeless situation? We are, so I embrace it. See that? Number two, let me show you a second thing I think Jesus does for us here. Attractional influence. I am warned to protect my influence. In the next part of each verse, verse 13 and in verse 14 and 15, Jesus adds what can be taken as kind of a warning to protect the effectiveness of our attractive influence. He instructs us how salt and light can lose its effectiveness and, and its attractive influences. He warns us of this. So here it is. You and I are salt and light. However, it, it appears pretty explicitly here that we can lessen or even uh, diminish the, the, the effect that we have on the world around us as salt and light. Salt must retain its saltiness in order for it to be effective. Light must be allowed to shine in order for it to be effective. Salt cannot lose its flavor and light cannot be hidden. Salt must remain salty in order for it to be effective. In fact, that's what he says in the second part of verse 13. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You can't restore it. Many have concluded here that what Jesus is describing is the salt that was familiar to those who lived near the Dead Sea. It was not pure salt as we know 
which never loses its flavor, but he was describing a salt that was not the pure article and it could lose its effectiveness to preserve or flavor. And when this happened, when the salt in this mixture of salt was lost, it was really good for nothing but, but to be thrown out and put on the ground for people to walk on in the streets. It had no more saltiness. It was thrown out, good for nothing. In fact, if you want to cross-reference Luke chapter 14, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, salt is good, but if it has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's not even good for the manure pile. It's pretty, pretty blunt, Jesus. Jesus is describing Christians who have lost their effective influence on the world. They, they are no longer useful influences. They are no longer attractive influences, bringing people to the glories of the gospel, making them long for what we have. They're like, well, if you have that and I have this, we're not much different. Why would I want this Jesus you have? It's bland, it's boring, it's religious. I don't want any of that. Instead of a testimony that influences others, the, the testimony of a saltless Christian has no eternal impact on others. Instead of helping bring others to Christ, sometimes those can actually hurt people from coming to Christ. Like saltless salt, worldly Christians are spiritually ineffective. Not only must salt remain salty, light must be in a prominent place to be effective, right? Like light under a, light under a, a, a bowl doesn't do anything. This, this says light under a basket. Remember that, remember that little kid song, This Little Light of Mine? I refuse to sing it to you. So I don't get any crazy ideas. I know some of you thought, I hope he sings that. I want to make fun of him later. We used to sing, hide it under a bushel. What do we say after that? No, won't let Satan blow it out, right? That was the thing. And I always used to think a bushel, like I thought that was a bush. Like, why would we put it under a bush? Start the bush on fire. That'd be weird. That's not what he's talking about here. A bushel was a basket. It was a basket or a pot. The, the, the Jesus is being like, extremely uh, almost jesting here. Why would you light a candle and then put it under a, a covering or a, a bowl or a bucket? Why would you do that? I don't light a candle in my house and then put a five-gallon bucket over the top of it. The logic isn't there. It doesn't make sense. It's not rational. He's saying, that's not what you do. And then he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. You don't put a, you don't put a, a light under a bushel. You put it in a prominent place, like a lighthouse on the shoreline where people can see it. Not in a canyon blocked by mountains, not under a basket or a, a bucket. It stands on a, on a hill, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You know, I read recently, even this morning, that Las Vegas is said to be the brightest city in the world from space at night. We live in the brightest city in the world from space at night. It's so brightly lit that, you know, you can see it from miles away. We're, not even, we're still in Arizona, and I can see it over there where those windmills are flying on your way to Arizona. You can look out and see, hey, the Luxor's on. Look at that. It's a bright city. You see, you can't hide it. You can't cover it. You can't conceal it. A Christian life properly lit by the light of Christ is a light that cannot be hid. It cannot go out. It cannot and should not be covered under the basket. It should not be diminished. It should not be made dim. It should not be turned down. It should shine brightly. It should be a lamp that's set on the nightstand or an end table in a prominent place it should be on a place where people can see it. In order for it to be effective as its intended purpose is of dispelling darkness, it must be placed in a prominent place. And that's what Christ is saying. Notice it in verse 16. In the same way, just as a city that's on a hill cannot be hid, just as a lamp that is set on a table not hidden, hidden under a bucket, in the same way, let your light shine before others. 
Jesus is saying, you and you alone are the lights of the world. Therefore, shine the reflection glory of Christ. So Christ's logic is sound, isn't it? Since we are salt, then we must continue to be salty. If we are called to have attractive influence, if we are light, then we are called to let our light shine from prominent places, shattering darkness. The point Christ is making, I think, is clear that we disciples are influences in our dark and sinful world. We must protect our influence by staying close to the Savior, dependent upon the Spirit and distinct from the world. Can I say that again? Because I think that's key to all of what's going on here. We must protect our influence for the glory of God by staying close to the Savior, dependent upon the Spirit and distinct from the world. It seems that then the role of the Christian salt and light in this world may be hindered and prevented through our, prevented through our choices and compromise or settling for that which is more convenient or more comfortable rather than that which is truly best and pleasing to the Lord. Salt is good for nothing if its saltiness is lost. Light is good for nothing if it's covered up and concealed. So stay salty, my friend, and shine brightly. That's what he's saying. Let me give you one last thing and we're done. Tractional influence, not only am I called to embrace my influence and I am warned to protect my influence through closeness to Christ. Number three, I am reminded to direct my influence. I think verse uh, 16 sums it up for us pretty clearly. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, anytime there's a so that, we know that's important. So that, or in order that, or the purpose of this is this, that they may see your good works. That's your shining brightly. That they may see the way you talk and the way you act and the kindness and love and peace and gentleness that oozes from you and the graciousness that oozes from you, that they may see those works and then do what? Applaud you? Say, man, you're a great person. I wish I was more like you so that you can put your mug on Facebook again and say, look how good I am. (laughs) I don't know why I said that. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to pick on social media, but here's why. So that they may give glory to your father who is in heaven. Jesus gives us a so that, which reminds us that The direction of our salty, light-filled influence is so that glory is returned back to him. Nobody looks at the moon and says, wow, that moon is bright. Look how much gas is coming off of that. And it's just burning and shining. No, we say, wow, man, the sun is so bright that it's reflecting off of that planet thing right there, that ball, and coming back to us. It's reflectant glory. Others should see your good works, but not so that you get the credit for what they see. Your good work should cause others to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. John MacArthur wrote this. This is the supreme calling of life. The supreme calling of life. Don't miss that. The supreme calling of life. Glorifying God. Everything we do is to cause others to give praise to the God who is the source of all that is good. Listen, any opportunity you have in you to do anything that's any good that shines bright in darkness is because of the work of God in you. There is nothing about you that does anything that gives God the glory apart from the work of the Spirit doing his work in you. So when you do something good, you need to recognize, man, I didn't do that. I'm sure thankful the Spirit of God indwells me and that all glory goes back to God who's doing this work in me. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Now listen, churches with attractional methodology will do anything they can to attract the world to attend the church. The goal is a bigger congregation, a bigger platform, and more influence, but that's not true of Christians who live with attractional influence. We live our lives so that Christ oozes from us and the glory is returned back to God the Father. That's what we're talking about. The good works are to be seen, not in order that the doers may be congratulated as fine, upstanding servants of God, but in such a way that the observers will give glory to your Father. Leon Morris said, there's to be no parade of virtue, no attempt to win praise for oneself. It is the light that is to shine, not those privileged to be the bearers of the light. People will always see the deeds that disciples do and disciples are to make sure that when that takes place, it is the light that they will see and that they will see it in such a way that they will praise God. They will praise God. (laughs) I read a story about a Hindu trader in India who was talking to a missionary. He asked this missionary, what do you put on your face to make it shine? (laughs) With surprise, the missionary answered, I don't put anything on it. The Indian began to lose patience and said emphatically, yes, you do. All of you who believe in Jesus seem to have it. It's seen in the towns of Agra and Surat and even in the city of Bombay. Suddenly the Christian missionary understood and his face glowed even more as he said this. Now I know what you mean and I will tell you the secret. It's something not that we put on from the outside, but something that comes from within. It is the reflection of the light of God in our hearts. May we live in such a way, right? That the people who live next door to us or work next to us or in anywhere we go look over and wonder, I wonder what that girl put on her face today. It looks bright and shiny. Why does that guy look so happy all the time? Why does he ooze with such grace? It's because we are called to be attractional influences for the glory of God. Some people will hate that, won't they? Some people will hate it and it will not attract them, but we know that it's directing glory back to God. So we embrace the influence that we have as salt and light that comes with being a disciple of Jesus Christ and we let our life be salty. We let our light shine. We don't seek to isolate or assimilate. We engage with saltiness and brightness. We protect our influence. We don't allow our saltiness to lose its effect. We don't allow it to be washed out by being conformed to the image of the world, but being transformed. We live close to Christ, dependent on the spirit so that our lives will reflect the light of Christ. And we, re- we direct our influence back, not for personal gain, but for the glory of God, existing as a doxological people so that even as attractional people, the glory of God is put on display. Amen? Amen. All right, we're done, but I got three quick learning to live questions I want to give you. Learning to live is what we do at the end of each sermon, if you're new here, to not just know what we know and learn what we learn, but learn so that we may live differently. And these are three steps, if you will, that help us get to maybe where we can apply these differently. Questions that I put in the first person so you can ask yourself. These aren't questions for your neighbor. These are for you. Write it down and ask it of you. First question is this. Whose disciple am I? The first question to be answered when it comes to salt and light is, whose disciple am I? If you're not a disciple of Christ, then the sermon about being salt and light is not something you need to deal with first. It just becomes another religious act of do and don'ts. You become salt and light by becoming a disciple of Christ. You become a disciple of Christ by placing your faith in him for your salvation. 
He lived a perfect life. He died a gruesome sacrificial death on the cross for you so that you can claim by faith his death and be restored back to God and be a disciple of Christ, regenerated and renewed. Jesus said it clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you're not a disciple of Christ, then you're still a part of this world in darkness and you need to come to the light of Christ so that then you can become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So come to the Father. If you, brother, sister, if you're not saved, if you don't know Jesus, if you're basing it off of a baptism or an experience or some decision, well, I'm gonna start going to church. Listen, salvation is more than all of that. Salvation is an intentional uh, a step in faith towards Jesus Christ and an acceptance of what he did for you on the cross. It's a repentance of your other ways of dependence and your sin and turning to him and inviting him to save you and, and give you the hope of eternal life. That's what it is. It's a regeneration. Come to him, come to him. Number one, that's whose disciple am I? Number, number two, how has my attractional life been compromised? If your salt and light life has been compromised, recognize it. Set this before the Lord. Ask the Spirit to help you. What is leaving you saltless? What is sucking salt from your life? What is dimming the light in your life? What is making it really confusing for people to say, what, you're a Christian? What is, what is doing that? If you have lost your testimony and your effective influence in the life of the world around you, then confess it. Return to Christ-centered living. Be a repentant person and say, Lord, I want to shine brightly again. I want to be salty again. I want to regain the testimony that maybe I lost in dimming that. Repentant. Go back again to saying, Spirit of God, I've hindered you from producing fruit in my life for far too long. And I want to, again, yield to that and surrender to that. So do it. And then lastly, and we're done, where will my attractional life be lived out this week? Some of you are going to go home to the lost world today. Some of you are going to go out into the lost world today. Some of you are going to drive down Rainbow today. (laughs) May we participate in those places as salt and light. Let us engage the world around us outside of the church and outside of a relationship with Christ. Let's engage them for the glory of Christ as a people of salt and light because God intends for his disciples to engage the world as attractional influences. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Grateful for what you've called us to do and be. We want to do this for your honor, for your glory. Help us to be a people of salt and a people of light. Help us to be a people who remember how we came to be here, how we came to know Christ, how we came to be saved. Help us to be a people who never think that we are in ourselves worthy of the light or or worthy of, uh, or, or, or the producers of light, or the producers of good works, but to be people who continue to live as representatives of you, yielded to you, producing the fruit that you bear in us. We love you, Lord. Grateful that you call us to be influences in the world around us, and you can do it through us. Help us to be dependent on Christ, obedient to your will, to surrender to the Spirit. If somebody here is not saved, I pray they'd come to know Christ as their personal Savior. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a couple minutes and have communion together this morning. The church regularly comes back to the table where the bread and the cup are served as a reminder of what Christ did for us on the cross. So I just want you to approach this with some reverence and and recognition that this doesn't save us. None of this work saves us. This is just a recognition that Jesus in the flesh, his body was broken open, the bread and his blood was shed, the cup, the fruit of the vine, So we approach this with reverence. We approach this with remembrance. We approach this with repentance. We who are God's children, we who have been saved, repent. 
because Christ died to save us from sin. So to live in bondage to sin is to short circuit what he's done for us on the cross. So we repent of that and say, based on what we're observing here, we're repenting. Christ died to help us so we would live in unity. So to live in division is to short circuit what he successfully bought for us. So we repent of that. We get things right. We are a repentant people. We don't live disrespectful or mocking or irreverent of what Christ did for us when we take of this, but we do this in remembrance. None of this saves you. This is just an act that we do to remember what Christ did for us. So if you're not a Christian today, we want to give you the liberty to let this pass by you. And if you're a follower of Christ, you've placed your faith in Christ, and you've been born again, we invite you to come in a minute and take of the bread and the cup and we'll eat of this together. So at the front of each one of these sections is a table and on the table is the bread and the cup. There's two cups stacked on top of each other. We're going to stand in a second and we're going to ask you starting on the front row, you leave to your left, come up, grab the two cups and go back to your seat on the other side. So it's all going to work in a big circle like this, starting in the front row, working our way back. You get back to your seat, you hold the two cups and uh, we will get back, I'll come back up and we'll take of these together as a church family. Let me thank God for it. And then we'll grab the elements together and then take of them. Father, thank you for what you've done for us here. Every time we gather around the table as a church family on level ground, there's no, there's no caste system here. There's no preferential treatment. We come equal ground to the cross again, reminding ourselves that Jesus's body was broken open and his blood was shed for our sin. And so we approach this with reverence and respect and repentance worshiping you and thanking you and overwhelmed by the reminder again that you did this for us. So bless this time now as we take of this. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.